This is Efficiently Effective, a podcast on content and UX. I'm your host, Saskia Wiedler. If we were to have a bet on which website would be proclaimed the best website of the decade, I would almost certainly put my money on gov.uk. The website, covering topics about government-related issues to citizens, organizations and businesses in the United Kingdom, combines the relevant information of more than 300 separate government websites. Whilst that alone is remarkable, what's also special is its straightforwardness and its no-frills design. There's no flashy colors, no revolving carousels with images, no overly prosaic text or anything else other than what's utterly necessary to get the information to the visitors as efficiently and effectively as possible. Gov.uk has an uncompromising, relentless focus on what the user really needs. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to work on a website like this? I know I have, and that's why I was thrilled to meet Sarah Richards. She led the content and design team at GDS, which stands for Government Digital Services. Sarah is one of the key players in the creation of what gov.uk is today. During her time at GDS, she defined her methods as content design. Content design is also the title of her book that came out this fall. My copy is already heavily dog-eared and battered due to intensive use. Today I get to speak with Sarah about her time at Government Digital Services or GDS and about content design. Before we begin, I would like to apologize for the poor audio quality of this episode. This is not how I like my podcasts to sound. I have been super clumsy with the recordings this time and I'm so sorry, especially to Sarah, whose voice sounds a lot better in real life. Uh, Hello, my name is Sarah Richards. I am a content strategist here in the UK. Um, I started uh, in design, actually, and and fell into editorial, and I was a total pedant at an advertising agency. And they took me away from creative and they put me into their quality assurance team. Um, And I ended up an editor and then, you know, stuff happened. And I uh, led the content design team at... UK when we went down to do the beta um, of, of that project. How did you end up in that position? <laughs> so is it through that agency or was that a, a new job? No, so I've been bumbling around Whitehall for about 10 years. As a contractor, you just kind of go from one contract to the next to the next. Um, and uh, I was, I'd taken a permanent position. So I was a civil servant at the time and I was working on a big orange website called DirectGov. And DirectGov was like GovUK, it was, it was all the government departments in, on one website, um, but we had no mandate. And we had a style guide and we had a, a working pattern, shall we say, with the departments. We did all used to work together, but um, if we as a central team in, in, in DirectGov wanted usability or usability testing or whatever, the departments could just say yes or no. Um, so to give you a sort of story, to give you an illustration on that, one of the departments hired journalists who were paid by the word. And so they were churning out <laughs> massive amounts of information, right? Massive amounts. And we kind of went to them and went, mm, can you stop, please? Um, and the first thing they did was kind of say, well, we pay for you. So 
and there was an awful lot of that sort of threatening going on. Um, so I was running a team who was doing a project called Convergence and we were taking 185 sites down into DirectGov. Um, we had 18 months to do it. We had, I don't know, I think it was five templates on the website and we could only use like three of them anyway. Um, and it was quite a difficult project. So we were going around all the departments and we were kind of saying, right, you need to come on to DirectGov. And nobody wanted to do it because DirectGov was great in a lot of ways, but it was also really limiting in what you can do. Um, and so not a lot of people wanted to go on it. And this had finished and then the alpha of, of GovUK was starting. A different team was doing that. Tom Loosemore was running that team. Um, one of my team who were running Convergence with me, she went down there, Lisa Scott, she went down to the Alpha and helped that team. Um, and then at the beginning of the beta, that's when Tom came up and um, asked if I, would, if I would lead the team down there. So I kind of got it from being around DirectGov and from doing the Convergence project beforehand. When was this? When you were working on DirectGov and when you were asked for Gov.uk? Oh, uh, now you're asking. <laughs> GovUK is five <laughs> today, I think it is. It's certainly okay. this week. So that will be, I don't know, six years ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. six years. How do you feel about working for a website that has been used widely in our, well, our field as an example of content and design done right uh it's amazing i mean it is amazing <laughs> <laughs> right it is amazing i get to fly around the world and have chats with people um because of it so it is you know it's career making it's an amazing place i think sometimes people get a weird view of it so i do get organizations um and other governments around the world going could you come and do content and uh you know, do Gov UK in six months by yourself, just using the content, and you can't hire or fire anyone. And it's a little... <laughs> I'm glad you're laughing. It's just to replicate, <laughs> yeah. just just to replicate the the the, the concepts yeah. for a company or so. Yeah, but they, they, they kind of want to do it, but they, I don't think they realise how much work went into that. And it wasn't mm -hmm. just the content and the design. You know, there were the developers and the. Um, product managers and the project teams behind it and, and everything so uh, I'm very very grateful and I'm amazed uh, and humbled by the whole GovUK experience um, it, is, it is an amazing project but I think it yeah. is slightly less shiny than maybe some people think it is there was a, there was a <laughs> lot of screaming and crying and you can't do that and uh, yeah another story GovUK was live and we worked around the corner from the British Museum and I had some very difficult conversations with people who just didn't want this project to happen. And I would take them to the British Museum because if they were in a meeting room, they would scream at me. Whereas if they were in public, they wouldn't. So I took them out and had tea and cake so that they would behave. Um, so yeah. Pro tip number one. Pro tip one. number one. People behave better when they're in public. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't all like that either. Do you know what I mean? You have to, you have to uh, take these things um, in context. But yeah. Why did they want? Why didn't they want this to happen? Why, why were they opposed to the project? A lot of people, you know, that some of the people in those websites they had awards. They won awards and they did incredible with their things. 
Um, and they were pulled along with a whole load of departments who were just doing it really badly, but had no desire to change because it was kind of working as far as they were concerned. Um, there was one department that had an agency who were just awful. They were a usability agency. They were doing usability and they were doing testing. So they couldn't understand why we were saying the complete opposite to what their agency was saying. But if you took one of those agency reports, it basically told them everything that they wanted to hear for 12 pages. And then on page 13, right. it gave you all the raw answers, which disagreed with the rest of the report. You know, <laughs> the agency had a bit of a cash cow uh, and they were using that for all they were worth. So um, there was quite a lot of that going on. There was also just um, a disbelief <clears throat> that we would go live without them. So when... Um, at the very beginning of the beta, Tom Loosemore kind of said it to me, okay, so this team, what are you called? What you know, what are the boundaries? What are we going to do? And I just went into a massive rant because of that project convergence and all the pain that we'd had in it. I was like, right, I don't want anybody signing off our content. You know, we as communication specialists know how to communicate. What we need is for it to be factually and legally correct. But I don't want somebody who's got no communications training whatsoever to be telling me how to structure a sentence or a heading. Um, so that came out. So that was one of the key things that I wanted that I wanted us to do. Indirect gov. We had no mandate. We had no, you know, and we had no backup, to be brutally honest with you. We had to cajole and negotiate and all that sort of thing. So they'd been through this process once where they had kind of got what they wanted. Not exactly what they wanted, but kind of what they wanted. Um, when we were going through this, one of the um, communications people in one of the departments just said, you can't do this. We're just not going to sign it off. Um so we were kind of like, okay, well, we don't need your sign-off because it's a beta and it's going to be under a great big banner saying this is a beta and so we're going to do it anyway. And they were horrified. I mean, genuinely, this had never been done in government before. Nobody had ever stood up to them and said, no, you can't do it because they own their content, you know, their content. Um, so it, it, it was a lot about that. But there were, there were some departments who just couldn't wait they couldn't wait for us to get on with this because they've been trying to do the same thing for years, but they couldn't get through their managers. So I had a I had a term at the time. It's called frozen middle. So you had the people on the project level. They wanted plain English usability. They wanted it to be clear for their users. You had the people at the very top, the directors of communications. They wanted the same thing. The middle level of managers just wanted to do everything that they've been doing for the past twenty years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was just it was just really difficult to try and get that middle management to not be threatened because sometimes some people see anything that's new as threatening rather than mm -hmm. something to get excited about. Um typical. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, there was a there was a lot of that kind of thing just like this is new, I don't want this to happen. I have no control over this, so I'm going to try and block it basically. Um there were some people who were saying, you know, that they've won awards for their websites. They couldn't see why it was going wrong. They couldn't see how we could do it better. So they didn't want to let go, which is kind of fair enough. Um, so there was a whole range of reasons. Most of it was, but this is my content. I'm in control. You don't know what you're doing. 
before going into gov.uk, you kind of knew then what you would be getting into, more or less. So did you anticipate on that? And how yeah, you- because of the Convergence project, I knew how everybody was going to react. So I had the friendlies on side really early and uh, was working with them. So one of them, who will remain nameless, worked on the Star Guide with me, but I could never tell his boss because his boss told him that he would be in deep trouble if he worked with me anymore, which is just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah, that, that's the level that we were at. That's the level that we were at. So um, the difficult ones, they were just difficult. We used to have, it was called the Franchise Directors Meeting. And uh, it was in Hercules House which is in London, which is now a hotel. And um, they were like, I don't know, 20 of these people, I don't know, a room full of these people. And I sat there with Tom Newsmore and he said, um, so Sarah's going to tell you about the new publishing model. And I said, yeah, so we're going to write it and then we're going to ask you to fact check it. And then, um, yeah, we're going to decide whether we take that or not. And then we're going to publish. And the whole room just stared at me. And they were like, you can't do that. It's our content. You can't do that. It's our content. And Tom was great. And he just went, yeah, that is what we're going to do. And um, <laughs> one of the, uh, it, it was brilliant. It was it was just one of the best highlights of my career. Uh, one of the people got up and stormed out, slammed the door. Um, uh, honestly, like if you have political shows like The Thick of It that we have in the UK, it, civil services like that and then some um, in, in places, not everywhere. Um, so, yeah, so there was much just uh, upset going on. So that started it, but the difference with GovUK is that we had... Tom Lucemore from day one, who just is an incredible kind of stakeholder and management person. But also he can say no to you with a massive grin on his face. And you're kind of like, okay, that's how this is going to happen. It also sounds quite stressful. How did you deal with that? Lots of tea, lots of cake, lots of cake. The, the thing is, it, it was one of the most stressful projects. Um, I had terrible insomnia. Um, there are two points in my career where my hair has fallen out. One was at DirectGov and uh, then on GovUK, I kind of leant forward once and a clump of my hair fell out on my pad. Um, yeah, don't get me wrong, it was m- massively stressful. But saying that, it was also the most fun I've ever had at work. It was. It was just... The people around us were just trying to get this stuff done. There were new people coming into government who just questioned so when we said oh we can't do that because of procurement somebody would look at us and go but why and then we go oh i don't know really you just can't and then somebody else would come in and just go and talk to whoever it was and keep going until they got it changed so that was an amazing thing there were just that question of why why are we doing that um in government and i i use this a lot in my presentations i've got um the process used to be ask, permission denied, learnt helplessness, which is one of um, GDS's kind of terms, where you learn not to ask anymore because there's no point. It's like batting your head up against the brick wall and eventually you just stop doing it and you stop asking. So again, one of the amazing things that Gov UK did was really simple and just ask, why are we doing this stuff? And then apply somebody to getting that turned around. It took a long time. And in government, it does take a long time to get some, you know, very ingrained processes turned around. But it it can happen. It did happen. 
would you take another project like this? <laughs> Maybe not tomorrow, but at some point in your career, what do you think? If, if the right people were on it, yes, in a heartbeat. Like I say, it, it was yeah. massively stressful. And there were long hours and you worked seven days a week and all your systems were on the phone and you kind of couldn't get away from it. But it was so much fun and the people were amazing. Because we'd been so frustrated for years in DirectGov, we knew what we wanted to do. So all the content team to start off with were all civil servants. So the designers and developers and everybody was coming in from outside, delivery managers, they were all coming in from outside generally. Um, we had a couple, actually, civil servant delivery managers. But um, most people were coming in from outside. But the content team, the content team were all civil servants. So we'd had years of frustration, years of not being able to get anything done. So it was like being released from the blocks. Do you know what I mean? We just ran at it. Um, yeah, it was great. It was great. Uh, how long were you at gov.uk? Not the full five years, No, right? no. Uh, Oh, I can't think. Three years? Yeah. Three maybe. years, right. Why, why did you leave? Um, things were changing. So with GovUK, it was very much, I had a deadline and I could run at it. And it was brilliant. And I was a bit like a human bulldozer. Um, <clears throat> and things were starting to calm down a little bit. And there was there were some problems with, um, people coming in from outside and being paid more, a lot more uh, than like me and various other civil servants. And that was one of the things that couldn't get changed. It's just the way the civil service works. And it's like, you know, trying to turn the Titanic. Um, so those sorts of things were going on. And, and a couple of years in, I remember the point where I just thought this is getting ridiculous now. It was a couple of years in and I was keeping a track of how much time I was taking to respond to emails and phone calls about why we weren't capping up the word government. And I was kind of like, not being funny, but it's been a style guy for years. Nobody cares. Um, we're just we're just not capping this up. And I thought, I, do you know what? I'm just going to... What, what do you mean with that? Like, yeah, so we, we decided that we would use a lowercase g for the word government. Um, and people were still emailing, calling me, like several years in. And I was like, this is ridiculous. We're trying to change the way that government communicates. And you're worrying about something that no user has ever fallen over. <laughs> I, I, just, I just can't anymore. I just can't. <laughs> yeah. Get your priorities straight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, tell me what happened after you left Gov.uk. Um, I took a little break and then I went to Citizens Advice, which is the largest advice giving charity in the UK. Um, and I span up a team for them. So uh, I brought in designers and um, user researchers, content people, uh, set that up and got that up and running. Uh, introduced Agile to that and content design as a discipline, you know, using evidence and data to create content. Um, and then after that, I became a consultant. And then I started traveling around the country and around the world doing training courses in content design and content strategy um, and helping organizations to bring those sorts of methodologies into their businesses. I'm kind of still doing that now. About this little thing, content design. What is that? It's a it's a way of thinking. It's a discipline. So when 
taking you back to the beta when Tom was kind of saying, what do you want for this editorial team? I just went into a massive rant. Editors at the time were told that they could correct grammar and punctuation, and that was about it, basically. But we knew so much more. You know, we were all reading about usability and um, trying to keep up to date with all the latest content things, but we weren't allowed to do it. So when Tom was talking about um, uh, what should you be called, we came up with content design as a discipline because it's kind of like it's not just words. At GovUK, we suddenly had developers that we could get hold of. So if we needed a calculator or a calendar or a tool or whatever, we could just say, we need this. The content is too complicated, you know, or, or it's it will be far too long to explain it in just straight words. What we need is three questions and a calculator. That's all we need. Um, so it became content design. And as the kind of years have got on, um, I've structured a, a, a kind of a, a formula around it and other people have done similar and, and done it slightly differently but it's the whole ethos is that you go get user data you know what do they want where do they want it what vocabulary are they using to find it um, and how are they talking about it on what channel and then you produce user needs what do they need from you not necessarily what they want so to give you an example at citizens advice we had a number of people who had debt problems um, and what they want is for you to get them out of debt. What they need is a series of steps and things that they can do to get themselves out of debt. So we finally use a need and then we write it again, following the mental models that the users have. So what, what are they expecting? When are they expecting this information? And then producing that and then putting it out and then iterating on it. Um, so I, we kind of came up with the term for the British government at the time to start a conversation because lots of people, if, if I'd just called them the editorial team, people would have expected us to behave in the same way that they were used to. And sometimes the language that we use to talk about ourselves influences right. the way we behave and that people behave towards us. So by changing this title, we were changing the conversation on what we could do. Um, and so I actually kind of just invented it for GovUK at the time, but it seems to be used everywhere now and confusing a whole bunch of people. So I'm sorry about that. Right. Um, I, I don't think adding another term to our industry's vocabulary is necessarily the best thing to do. Um, <laughs> but I have had just loads of messages from people saying, oh, that better terms what I do than editor or writer. Yeah. So, you know, it, I think it's a conversation that still needs to be had. And it would be great if we as an industry could actually settle on a whole bunch of terms that we're all happy with. It's quite ironic <laughs> that we as word people can't decide that. So you're talking about wants and needs, like uh, identifying the wants and needs of your customer. Um, what else is very typical about content design? What are some typical practices? you can identify? I think mostly it's about going to get the data and going to get the evidence. So um, in the courses that I teach and in the book, I tell people to go to things like Google Trends, um, Google AdWords, that sort of thing, get the vocabulary people are using. I also um, go through how to search on social media and on forums because people love talking about just about anything. 
right online a, a caveat to it is that that's their digital language um, and native language the stuff that they use just coming out of their mouths is very different so you do have to kind of take lab research I prefer lab research um, and proper design user research um, but if you can't get it then you can do this sort of desk research and kind of mash the two um, digital language and uh, native language together to kind of understand how people are talking but I think the main difference is is that it's about evidence it's not about sitting there and deciding how to say something and using creativity to do that so when I was talking about me being an advertising agency I would spin up uh, a dream in my head and try and sell that to sell the product content design is the exact opposite of that it's more reflecting um, the audience's mental models. It's reflecting their vocabulary to pull them in and make them more comfortable and get them through the content faster. You're also talking about user stories and job stories in your mm -hmm. book. Um, what's the difference between the two? So user stories always have a person attached or a role or a description. So it's as a, I want to, so that. Um, job stories are more task focused so it's kind of when and then you put a situation and then you say I want to do a thing so that I can achieve a goal of um, some of the organizations that I work with only do one thing really for one audience and it's a bit ridiculous to write as a all the way down because you're just writing the same audience and then what's the point of that it's a lot better to do it more task focused um, right yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. One of the um, people that we trained was from the Red Cross. And they had two distinct audiences. One is trainers and the other people uh, are just kind of citizens. Now, one of their top performing pages at the time, this was a while ago, was about choking. So as a trainer, you need a lot of in-depth knowledge so that you can train, right? And there's a difference in choking, apparently. Um, you know, you can be coughing or throttling or, or whatever. But if you have a child in front of you or somebody in front of you who's choking, you kind of need to know what to do in like four seconds. Um, so you would you would produce those pages very differently. So in that case, a user story is necessary because the person is equal or more important to the task. Whereas with a job story, it's the task that's more important than the person performing it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's just if, if your users are very different and they will approach a task differently, then I would use a, a user story. But other than that, job stories give you really granular content. They give you really focused, great content. You can't kind of go wrong with a job story, in my opinion. So, so can you give us an example of a job story then also? Yes, an example from WK. So if you wanted to apply for a fishing license, it doesn't matter who you are, really. Uh, you, As long as you want to go fishing, um, you can apply for a fishing license. It doesn't matter how old you are, what audience you are. It doesn't matter what job you have. Um, none of those things matter. It only matters that you want to apply for a fishing license. So you can. Whereas if you want to apply for child benefit, for example, you have to be a parent.
but only parents will apply for child benefit. In which case, do you need to write as a parent all the way down? No, probably not, because it's the task of applying for child benefit that is more important than the person doing it. In Sarah's book and workshops, you'll learn more about user stories, job stories, and how to use them. And then there are some other techniques in there, like the content crit, which is something I hadn't heard of before. It, it came from when I was at design school. And um, you have design crits. And everybody sits around, and I don't know, my experience at college was that everybody tore everybody else's work apart. It wasn't actually very nice. Sounds um, like fun, yeah. yeah. Great. <laughs> Must be great for your self-esteem. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, I introduced them at GovUK as content crits, but I invited the designers and the developers were uh, also invited. And we had rules. You know, um, and, and the rules developed over time. So now my rules are things like um, you only talk about the product, not the person. The person whose work is up doesn't need to say anything, really. They just need to take notes and say thank you. It's up to them whether they take your comments or not. It's not, uh, it's not a bashing exercise. <laughs> it's a how can we make this product better mm -hmm. exercise. Um, I find that they're really great for building new teams and coming up with a star guide, any sort of star guide. Um, it just moves things along a lot faster than like one-to-one -one meetings or sessions or whatever. So generally you would do the crits really early if you've got a user need in and then you were kind of like, okay, so I'm going to skeleton this out. These are the things that I found. What do you think? And you get a lot of input really quickly. You can do a crit in like 15, 20 minutes. And I find that they move the content forward much, much faster. So tell me, who is this book for? Um, originally, I wrote it for people who were new to the discipline. So I get a lot of copywriters and journalists and people who have been in editorial, digital editorial for a long time, but they don't use data and they don't use evidence um, again, it's that kind of, I'm going to write it and then it's going to be fine kind of approach. Um, and because of GDS, uh, there's a lot of noise in the industry now about how to do it in a different way. Um, so originally it was, it was for them, but the kind of feedback that I'm getting from Twitter is that a lot of uh, product managers and service designers are picking it up because of similar reasons. Right, it's, it's the process of getting to your users maybe when you don't have lab research um, and you don't have a huge user research team um, and it's more about how to communicate. There's also um, a chapter in there on how to communicate with stakeholders um, because I've had a lot of experience of that in the past 10 years with people shouting at me in the you British have. Museum. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, that isn't in there. I haven't put take people to a public place. Um, <laughs> but there's a lot of, you know, even from the email, the first email that you write to someone saying, you know, this is a decision-making workshop. This is a decision-making session. Even just, again, using that vocabulary about the way that we talk about our work can change how our work comes out. Um, right. So there's some of that as well. And it takes an example all the way through of where I went to get vocabulary, how I got the mental models, and then how I would 
deal with it with stakeholders, taking it through a crit, and then right at the back there's the kind of finished pages of how I would have produced those pages. So it has a concrete example all the way through for people to follow. The, the, the book is full of little pearls of wisdom, like uh, you can be boring in five words or less. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> uh, maybe you should explain what you mean by that. Uh, that came from... Um, DirectGov used to have a word count. And a lot of a lot of places still have a word count. You must have 750 words on a page or you must not go over 750 words. And I just find that if you put a number to a page, people will write to that number, whether they need to mm -hmm. or not. Um, it, it, it seems to be like some beacon or something that they need to run at. Whereas I just think, to be honest, if you keep your content to what you need to write for people and how to engage people and kind of get them involved with what you're saying, then you don't need a word count. Now, there are academics who love a 10,000 word PDF. They, they just do. Um, but most people who just want to be entertained or they want to do a task, they're not going to want 10,000 words. You know, you can do it in two, three hundred and then leave it alone. You can be boring in five words. Don't be boring is yeah. what I'm saying. Sarah's book is now available. More information on contentdesign.london. And you should get it because as someone who listens to this podcast, you want to know more about content design so you can apply its methods to your work. And as a maker of this podcast, I want to know what you think of it, besides maybe not the superb quality of the sound of this episode. So I can make better podcasts for you. So do let me know what you think via EffectivePod on Twitter, EfficientlyEffective.fm or leave me a review on iTunes. This episode was made by me, editing and technical help, <coughs> damage control by Sanders Polspool. Thanks to Sarah Richards for taking the time in her busy schedule to talk to me. Theme music by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. And at the end of this month, I'm speaking about GDPR in content and design at ThingsCon in Amsterdam. So do come say hi if you're there too. Efficiently Effective is a production by The Duchess.